Hello, hello, hello. Secrets, just like beer, are no fun unless you share with everyone. Hello there, and welcome to Tangle Tales. My name is Andy. I am the operator of Tanglefoot Brewing in Temple, Texas, and I just cracked open a 10-degree pale lager. You may be asking yourself, why are you cracking open a 10-degree pale lager? Well, I'll tell you, listener. I've decided to do a little series on the specific beers that I brew at Tanglefoot, and I know I kind of did an overview of what those beers were and why I chose them, but I wanted to dive into how I actually brew each recipe and what the characteristics of each recipe are. So starting at the very top of the menu is the 10 degree pale lager. Um, There's a lot of things about the brewing industry that people have misconceptions about, but I think one of the main misconceptions is that there are secret recipes and um, secret techniques that are, you know, that's what makes the specific brewery or specific beer so good. And, and there has been a lot of that in the past and in the beer industry, you know, actually Czech beer is a great example of that being tight lipped about processes and ingredients and things like that. But me, I'm an open book. I like to tell it like it is. And I like to give people uh, answers to questions that they have. And my answer to when people ask what's the secret recipe is uh, there is no secret. Um, It's very simple as far as the recipe is concerned. And the execution of that recipe is the most important part, in my opinion. And it's an, you know, obviously all the factors play in together. But I, uh, yeah, I just wanted to dispel that myth of uh, the secret recipes. And, you know, if you want to brew beer as good as I brew beer, then all you have to do is, uh, you know, do it for 10 years and uh, you'll get pretty good at it. But as far as the recipe and the execution are concerned, pretty straightforward and I'm happy to talk about it. So, Welcome in on this three-part series about my three core beers, starting with the 10-degree pale lager. Cheers, everybody. All right, so 10-degree pale lager. First, let's talk about Czech pale lager. Uh, Czech-style pale lagers are generally lighter, obviously pale in color, brewed with almost most of the time exclusively Pilsner malt, although that is something that is uh, surprising to a lot of folks to find out that some of the the finest Czech pale lagers do in fact use caramel malt instead of solely relying on uh, decoction, uh, decoction mashing and the process of how that imparts uh, Maillard reactions to the wort. Anyways, Czech pale lager, usually pretty, um, pretty light in color, uh, firm bitterness, generally brewed with Czech Saz hops, and the variation outside of those metrics is v- super, super wide and diverse. And um, so I think I mentioned in the previous episodes that the my naming system is based on a traditional Czech way of naming beers and that I identify each beer by the starting sugar content of the wort. In degrees Play-Doh. So the 10 degree pale lager starts off at 10 degrees um, Play-Doh. So when I was approaching this particular beer, I thought this was going to be my best-selling beer on the lineup. 
And I think I already explained that it is not the best selling beer. In fact, it's the worst. I maybe not worst, but it is the uh, I sell the second um, least amount of this beer because the 13 and the 12 um, outpace that. People like those, like to drink those. At least they drink them more frequently. So, anyways, when I was building out the menu, I wanted something that was lighter, something that was approachable, not too fancy or pretentious or too bitter or anything that would be off-putting to the you know the average beer drinker that wants to come in and drink a shiner with their barbecue. So I wanted this to be kind of the uh, the cornerstone of what Tanglefoot was. So. Uh, developing this recipe, I obviously knew that I wanted the starting gravity to be at 10 degrees, but, um, then I, uh, yeah, I started playing around with some different malts and, um, did some trial batches at, at the house when I was first starting the idea of Tanglefoot. And what I came up with was a simple recipe, but, um, yeah, I guess I can just overview it. Uh, keep in mind that I brew on a one barrel system or I knock out one barrel at a time, I actually double mash into one um, large kettle so that I can knock out a barrel, but none of that matters. Uh, all that matters is that these are going to be, uh, all of the details of this recipe and the execution are going to be in pounds or ounces or however I, I log them and you can extrapolate that and take percentages if you want. But again, nothing too crazy. But um, this recipe consists of 44, de uh, 44 degrees, 44 pounds of uh, Pilsner malt. I use Vireman malts exclusively. Um, well, not exclusively, but I use Vireman malts for uh, all of my base Pilsner malt and uh, all of my specialty uh, malts in the uh, Tamave, the darker beers. So uh, they're just a super premium product and I've, I've used them for years at Blackstar and I love them. I think that they are second to none, especially when you're talking about roasted malt. But we'll talk about that in the third and most anticipated episode of this series. So I start with a base recipe of uh, 44 pounds Byerman Pilsner and one pound of honey malt. Honey malt is a unique malt that is a caramel malt, but it is processed in a way that it is fermented and rotted almost. Uh, it's from a company called Gambrinus, and I think they're in Canada. But anyways, produces this really unique light honey character that is awesome. And if you just want this, you know, this kind of higher end floral malt note and not to like burnt sugar, caramelly flavor. So I use that in, in a lot of, in small percentages in a lot of beers that I want to accentuate malt notes. So that is the the base grain recipe and based on my um, brew house efficiency and the volumes that I I extract from the mash itself I am that's what leads me to um, and, and then obviously boiling that's what leads me to uh, yielding a 10 degree play-doh work um, so I start by mashing in those grains. I, I mill the grains and then I start by mashing in those grains, like I've said on a previous podcast about the process. I then decoct for about 10 minutes for this particular recipe. So I pull off a quote unquote third of the mash and boil it aggressively for about 10 minutes and then I uh, reintroduce it. So initially when I mash in, I'm shooting for about 152 degrees Fahrenheit. 
this single this single infusion mashing regime is is not super traditional, but it gets the job done, and it's not something that I have really wanted to alter too much. One because the the amount of time that it takes to do specific step mashing is pretty pretty extreme. Uh, and I'm already brewing on a super inefficient scale right now. So adding anything else just doesn't really make any sense, but it's also very difficult to control on the system that I have. I, I mean, the temperature control on my single infusion mash is already pretty, pretty difficult as it is. Cause I'm just again, putting grain into pots with hot water and stirring it in. I'm not, I have no, um, temperature, uh, recirculation control and things of that nature. So. Uh, that's one aspect of my brewing process. That's not very, um, efficient, but Hey, it gets the job done. So after mashing in and after pulling off the one third of the mash to decoct for 10 minutes, I reintroduce that decoction. It raises the temperature of that mash solution, depending, ugh, depending on how much, uh, heat loss was incurred through the, you know, moving it from one vessel to another, raise it about five to 10 degrees. So it's not super precise, but it is, um, yeah, that's, that is also not like a huge, um, data point that I'm trying to hit. So once that happens, I begin to recirculate. Um, so the initial mashing process takes about 20 minutes. I pull off the portion for decocting. I boil it for 10 minutes, reintroduce it. And then I start recirculating the wort from the bottom of the mash tun back into the top of the mash tun. And what this does, it's a process called Vorloffing. It pulls, you know, wort from the bottom of the mash that may have particulate and some um, some haziness to it. And it recirculates it through the mash bed, which acts like, like its own filter and starts to filter out all of the particulate. And then after about 20 minutes of that, you are looking at pretty clear wort. So all in all, from mash to decoction to uh, recirculation, it's about an hour's worth of um, worth of work in that time. It's more than adequate amount of time to uh, convert all of the uh, starches into fermentable sugars. I kind of talked about this in the uh, the brewing overview podcast, but I would like to do a little bit more of a deep dive into each of these kind of uh, chemical and biochemical processes that are happening. Um, and the mash is one that's super interesting. And uh, yeah, it's one that's fun to learn about, but that's not uh, appropriate for this episode. So after the mash is completed, I Vorloff to have clear work coming out of the bottom. Uh, it will run off into my kettle. So I'm pumping work from the bottom of my mash tun from the mash bed into the kettle. And then I'm sparging or rinsing the grain with hot water being pumped from another pump on top of the, uh, on top of the mash bed. So as I'm pulling off this really concentrated wort, I'm rinsing the rest of the mash with uh, hot water that was heated in another vessel. So as I'm filling up my kettle, I'm watching the volume. I'm making sure that there's always a, a nice like inch, uh, inch depth of water on top of the mash of uh, sparge water on top of my mash bed so that I have nice consistent water flow through that grain bed and I'm extracting as much sugar as possible. So once I get to my uh, kettle full, 
I'm looking at, sorry, I'm scrolling through my, uh, my recipe right now, just so I have the, uh, appropriate numbers for you. Um, so yeah, once you, um, once you finish the mash and you, you start sparging and you're, uh, filling the kettle up, you're looking to hit a certain volume in the kettle. And all of these numbers were, um, you know, they're all calculated beforehand. So I'm really just trying to hit numbers that are already set in my recipe. And I'll, I'll do an, an episode on maybe recipe um, development in the future. But I'm looking to hit about uh, 40 gallons of wort collected from this particular mash. So uh, once I hit that level, I take a sample um, of that wort. Oh, uh, almost forgot to mention during the mash, uh, I'm also taking a sample of the wort as uh, like during the time that it's it's recirculating and clarifying, I take a sample of that wort. I test its gravity, so the sugar uh, content of the wort, and then I'm also testing the uh, pH. And on this particular beer, I'm shooting for a pH of about 5.2, 5.3, and a uh, uh, the gravity it, it varies, but it's probably sits around like. I want to say 20, 22 to 23 degrees, uh, Plato for the first wort gravity. So once I have a kettle full, I'm at 40 gallons. I am, and this is going to be a little confusing. Let me see if I can bring up a, a chart, a conversion chart. I should have done this before I started the podcast, but, um, I refer to all of my beers, um, as like 10 degree, 12 degree, 13 degree Plato. Um, but in my particular, the, the app that I use to, to hold my recipes, everything is in specific gravity. So specific gravity is just a different type of measurement, or it's a different type of a unit that measures the same. It measures the amount of sugar that is in the solution, the density of the solution. And specific gravity is represented in um, a number that is one point blank, blank, blank. So it's, uh, you know, 1.0 one three or 1.088 and that is a reference to the weight or the density of that solution as compared to water which would be 1.000 it would be one is the is the uh value so these uh these numbers i'm going to try to try to um convert as as i'm reading them off to you so my pre-boil gravity so at that 30 I'm sorry, that 40 gallons in my kettle full, I'm looking to shoot for about 1.033 or 8. Um, 8.25 degrees, degrees uh, Play-Doh. So when you're collecting that wort, the first stuff that comes off is very concentrated. I mentioned it's like 22 or 23 degrees Play-Doh. Uh, and then the last stuff that comes out off is off of the uh, sparge is very dilute, close to water, um, so closer to that 1.000 density. Uh, but the homogenization of both of those liquids and and the blending of those two densities comes out with this averaged density solution. And in this case, it's 8.25 uh, degrees Plato. So. I then boil this for uh, 90 minutes. I have a 90-minute boil on all of the beers that I do, except for the 22-degree tamabe, which I believe was like a two-and-a-half, two-hour boil. 
beer break. But I um, am adding hops in the boil for bitterness and flavor sometimes. So the uh, first 30 minutes of the boil is pretty much nothing is happening. And um, the second, or not the second half, but after the 30 minutes is completed, uh, it's a, uh, there's 60 minutes left in the boil. And that's when I add my first addition of hops. So I have, um, in this particular recipe, where is it at? Uh, hops, 11 ounces of, uh, check size hops that are rated at 3.9% alpha acids. Uh, I think I touched on the alpha acid content in another episode, but basically it's the percentage of oils um, or acids in these this hot material that will be turned into bitterness, essentially, to keep it short. Um, so 11 ounces of those boiled for 60 minutes uh, yields about 27 IBUs of bitterness, calculated bitterness. So uh, that is my only hop addition in the 10 degree pill lager. Again, this is like a light, easy drinking, relatively crisp beer. Um, but still 27 IBUs is, is not very, is not extremely low, uh, for context, uh, Miller light, let's say is maybe like eight IBUs. So hops, those get added at 60 minutes in this particular recipe. I boil for another 45 minutes. And then at the 15 minute mark, I had some miscellaneous things. Uh, one thing I add is um, some. I, I did forget to mention the salts that I'm adding in the uh, in the mash. I do add about uh, 20 grams of calcium chloride and four grams of gypsum or calcium sulfate to the mash to adjust for pH. So when I'm mashing those grains in with the water, I want that pH to come out to the around the 5.2, 5.3 pH range that I was mentioning. And, um, in order to achieve that with the specific water that we have in temple, uh, I need to add a little bit of salt, uh, or salts that are acidic in nature. And so it brings the pH, uh, down a little bit. So outside of that, I do, uh, and, and some of the, the recipes I do end up adding at this 15 minute mark, some more salts. So maybe some more calcium, um, chloride to soften up the water and make uh, that malt character really rounded and nice. But in this particular recipe, I don't need to add that. Uh, but I do need to add whirlflock, which is a coagulation agent that essentially takes all of that protein that coagulates and uh, basically comes out of suspension during the boil. It helps all of that flocculate and coagulate together and fall to the bottom of the kettle so that I can have a good separation of that material that I don't want in my fermentation uh, separate from the clean wort that I, I do want to send to fermentation. So, uh, and then also I add about 10 grams of uh, yeast nutrient at this point as well. So a 15 minute mark is when I add any of the excess salts or um, anything else like the uh, whirlflock or um, yeah, yeast nutrient. Uh, and then the last 15 minutes to boil, that's, uh, you know, pretty straightforward. I'm just boiling and sorry, my, uh, girlfriend Jody just walked in and I cut off the end of that 
recording to go say hello. But uh, essentially, after the last 15 minutes of the boil, it's flame out or you, pretty self-explanatory, turn off the flames. And uh, you then move directly into the whirlpool step. So for me, on my system, very small, very simple, very inefficient. But I am whirlpooling with a the uh, wooden mash paddle that I have. So I dip that into my kettle. I stir counterclock, or I'm sorry, clockwise for at least a minute or two until the entire volume of liquid is is spinning um, pretty vigorously. So that all of that coagulated protein, all of that hot material, anything that's floating around in that solution will come uh, centripetally into the middle of the kettle and fall into a nice, uh, it's like a cone deposit shape at the bottom of the kettle so that you can pull off good, clean wort from the side. So uh, at this point, I am taking a gravity reading. So I'm pulling off a sample of the wort that is in the kettle. Uh, during the boil, there's a lot of things that are happening, but reducing the volume of liquid is one thing that is very important. So um, my post kettle volume should be sitting around 36 gallons based on my boil off rate. Uh, and then my original gravity or post, yeah, original gravity of the, uh, the concentration of sugar in that uh, wort, since it did concentrate over the boil, should be sitting at 1.041 or basically 10.1, 10.2 degrees Plato. So uh, if I can hit that super precisely, I'm always very happy. Uh, I think one of the things that can set you apart as a brewer, as far as like how good of a brewer you are, at least how good you are in achieving the goals that you want on a brew day is attention to de detail on the little things and hitting numbers. So I get pretty upset if I'm like more than a half a degree Play-Doh off at any one of these steps um, or same with pH. If I'm, if I'm like 0 0.5, 0 0.05 or 0 0.1 uh, off on pH reading, it's, it, it means that something is, has happened that needs to be adjusted uh, in the future. A lot of times, uh, as far as pH is concerned, there's not much you can do. The damage is done. But in regards to uh, gravity, if I say, for instance, my pre-boil gravity was a little bit lower than I expected, then I'm assuming that I extracted less sugar from that mash than what I was expecting. So uh, one of the solutions to that could be to boil longer. Um, and if it is significant enough, this is something I've done several times uh, at Tanglefoot and at Blackstar, is you extend that boil. There are some uh, downstream minor effects that may not be ideal from that. Uh, but if I, I personally believe that hitting that gravity is super important because it affects the perceived bitterness, you know, you calculate bitterness for a certain level of residual uh, sugar to balance out the, the bitterness. And so if that's off in one of the one direction or the other, that severely affects the beer. Um, if your gravity is too low, that affects the final gravity of the beer, which is, in my opinion, like a huge mistake that a lot of brewers make, um, maybe like on the homebrew scale, I don't know about like so much professionally, but like accepting lower starting gravities and then thinking the final product will not be affected that much. Uh, it affects it a ton. If your if your starting gravity is, is too low and your finishing gravity is, uh, just as low, if not lower, 
respectively, then you have a totally different beer. Um, and then, yeah, so making sure that you're, you're one, taking down uh, data and information and, and storing it, and two, um, making it repeatable and hitting your numbers. Because if you made the, you have the best recipe in the world, that's why I always say that recipes don't really mean shit, it's the execution. Um, you could have the best recipe in the world, but if you're not hitting the numbers or following the process exactly, then it doesn't matter. You're, you're not going to achieve the same result. So um, once the whirlpool has been started, uh, all the all the liquid is moving in a circle in a whirlpool fashion. I let that sit for about 15 minutes for all of that uh, material to fall out to the bottom of the kettle. And then I begin knocking out. Uh, I talked about knocking out in the previous episode detailing the brewing process, but essentially I am cooling down wort by means of a heat exchanger, um, running cold water through one end of a heat exchanger, running the hot wort through the other end of the heat exchanger and transferring the energy. So you're cooling wort from, let's say it's at 210 degrees Fahrenheit at this point down to my target uh, knockout temperature of 50 degrees for this specific check pills yeast. So I want to knock that out uh, as quick as possible. And generally speaking, I do, I'm able to knock out in about 30 minutes. So that's pretty nice. Um, then the uh, knockout volume is kind of a, my, my fermentation vessels are plastic beetle vessels. And so they're not like super accurately marked. I, I did a, you know, put a gallon in, mark the measurement, put another gallon, mark the measurement type of thing. And, it, it works for a rough idea, but essentially I'm knocking out about 32 gallons uh, of wort, which yields me a little bit less than a barrel uh, when it's all said and done due to like trube and, and yeast loss, but yeast loss. But anyways, that is uh, just kind of a, uh, a point I wanted to touch on. And so uh, at the end of the day, fermentation, uh, or I'm sorry, the wort gets knocked out into the fermentation chamber at 50 degrees. I set the fermentation to 50 degrees. And, and, uh, while I'm knocking out, I'm oxygenating, uh, with a steady stream of oxygen for about six minutes as just a, a calculation that I came up with to introduce enough oxygen that is adequate for a fermentation. Uh, I pitch the amount of yeast that I harvested for this specific beer. Um, so for this specific beer, it ends up being about four pounds of yeast slurry that I've harvested from a previous healthy fermentation at Tanglefoot. These numbers are so unique <laughs> to my system and they will be so unique to somebody else's system. But just know that this is based on a calculation of healthy yeast cells in a given milliliter of uh, beer slurry or yeast slurry from a previous fermentation. And also my 10 years of experience or nine years of experience knowing what good healthy yeast looks like, smells like, tastes like. And um, yeah, so four pounds, four to five pounds, it's always better to err on the side of more than less, specifically with the lager fermentation. Uh, when you're pitching yeast in a lager fermentation, you're generally pitching about one and a half to two times as much yeast as you would with a an ale fermentation. Um, so all of that to say, I pitch my four to five pounds of, of good yeast slurry into this barrel of wort. And then I close up the lid, close the fermentation chamber, i.e. the upright freezer. And then I uh, set the temperature controller to 50 degrees and I let it go.
the benefit of not being in a temple for more than three days a week, uh, sometimes two, is that I have no issue with setting and forgetting and just putting the beer in there and walking away. Downsides of this are you don't have eyes on fermentation. You don't, you, you're not able to catch things immediately. If my fermentation stalled or didn't kick off as vigorously as I hoped, or for whatever reason, say my power gets kicked off, which has happened before. Um, you're not there to immediately um, troubleshoot and assess the damage of, of things that have happened. But the good part of it is that you are able to walk away and not like fret or worry about what's going on with these check lager fermentations at 50 degrees. They're taking uh, two and a half to three weeks for primary fermentation to complete anyways. So the first week is, you know, when I come in the week after I pitch my yeast, my, my checking up on it is I open the, the freezer door and I look at the Kreuzen ring, which is the kind of like the foam uh, and yeast that's created on top of a fermentation when it's active. Uh, the deposit is like a dark ring around the side of a fermentation vessel. I check to see that that happened and then I close it and I walk away. Uh, I don't take too many samples early on because there's not, um, cause I have taken samples early on and tracked it. And I'm only seeing about half, half of a uh, fermentation completed within the first week or week and a half. So then I start taking samples more regularly and, um, yeah. So monitoring fermentation looks like me coming in, to work the bar, I take a sample, I measure its gravity, I input that into my brewing um, application and track that. And once the gravity of the specific beer reaches a point, generally a little over halfway through fermentation, I will increase the temperature of the fermentation chamber, which basically takes it from 50 degrees set point to 60 degrees Fahrenheit and the temperature will slowly rise over the next few days in order to keep fermentation going healthy and strong and allow the yeast to be or to remain active so that it starts to clean up all of the uh, diacetyl that it produced and any other off flavors or or yeast um, flavor con contributors that aren't ideal in the final product and then uh, after let's say two three weeks of uh, fermentation and I've hit my terminal gravity, or in this case, the 10 degree pale lagers terminal gravity. Uh, let me see what this last one ended at. 1.0. So this one finished pretty low and um, the mash, um, the amount of conversion that happens in the mash contributes to the final gravity. Uh, the amount, the original gravity contributes to the final gravity, but this particular beer finishes at 1.010 or about, well, anywhere between 1.008 and 1.010 or 2 to 2.5 degrees Play-Doh. So given that, the, uh, the beer will finish out at around 3.8 to 4% ABV. So it's pretty low ABV. Uh, I say 4% ABV because generally speaking, that's, that's kind of where it hits, but, um, yeah, it's a light sessionable beer, but, uh, anyways, back to the fermentation, um, monitoring, uh, once the terminal gravity 
is hit and I've recorded a terminal gravity reading for at least two to three days in a row, and I know that it's finished, I am uh, going to take a sample of that. I'm going to heat it up to about 140 degrees and let it sit there for 15 minutes so that I can do a forced diastole test and check to see if there's any remaining diastole or diastole precursor. Remember, this is the one that tastes like uh, butter, butter popcorn. Uh, checking to see if there's any of that precursor in the in the beer, and then I um, once I, I identify that there is no longer any diacetyl precursor, I will start to crash the beer. So I initially started crashing um, these track loggers slowly, like one, maybe two degrees Fahrenheit per day for an extended period of time. But due to the nature of me not being in Temple for that long of a time. Or, or that many days consistently, I started just doing a crash from 60 to 50. So I was bringing the initial temperature down um, like 10 degrees, but the nature of using a uh, fermentation chamber the way or the upright freezer, the way that I do, it cools the temperature of the ambient or the ambient temperature to 50 degrees. And so that actual temperature of the fermentation uh, will slowly ramp down over the course of a couple of days. And, um, so yeah, I do that. I let it sit at 50 for, you know, at anywhere from a week or two, um, or oh, anywhere from like a week or to two weeks. And then I start, uh, to crash it to 34 degrees. Um, and again, I do a rapid crashing on that. I don't, I don't do the one to two degrees per day. It's just something that I've done based on the dynamic of how much, how much time I spend in temple and it seems to produce great results. So once it's down to 34 degrees, this is where all the magic happens. Uh, depending on production, I will let it sit there from one week or seven weeks. Um, if I have time for it to sit on yeast, like that for longer, I will. If not, I'm doing the lagering in kegs, so I will empty the, um, well, uh, I guess rack <laughs> the the beer into two kegs, and then I will keep them in our walk-in cooler um, for an extended period of time. So it's these beers. As soon as I start crashing the beer is when I I deem it to be lagering. Um, so two months after really like one and a half to two months after I, I start cooling it. Um, but yeah, I let it sit in there and the beer clarifies in the kegs, the yeast sediment out. And what is left with is a nice, clean, lagered, 10 degree pale lager. So um, then the final step in the process I talked about during the carbonation episode is I pull the keg out. I hook it up to the CO2 coupler that is connected to my large CO2 cylinder set at 14 PSI. The um, keg will pressurize to 14 to 15 PSI, and it will sit there under that pressure for at least a week, and it will passively carbonate through the exposure um, of CO2 on the, the headspace. So once that happens, I reintroduce the keg back into the cold room, and I leave it there until I need to... Uh, need to serve it. And then when it, when the keg that is nearest to, or when the, the last keg blows and I need to get that, uh, I need to replace that beer. I will go into the walk-in, I will grab it, I will wheel it out and I will connect it to the specific line for the 10 degree pale lager. 
will pour through. Generally, when I connect a new keg, it's a bummer because it kind of uh, disturbs all of that sedimented yeast on the bottom of the keg. And so the first few pours are a little bit murkier, a little bit hazier, which is not ideal. It's not, it's one of the things that, that I hate the most about the system and the setup that I have. But honestly, you know, there's, there's only so many things that, um, there's only so much that I can do with this space and, and the amount of time that I'm there. Uh, there are solutions to the problem, but I, uh, yeah, nothing that has been, been ideal that I've tried. So anyways, then I have the beer on tap and it is good to go. So that was a lot, a lot of talking for this one specific beer, but, uh, that is the 10 degree pale lager. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to this uh, informative recipe overview. I will be doing the 12-degree pale lager next, and then, uh, yeah, and then stay tuned for the uh, ever-alluring 13-degree pale lager, or pale lager, tamave, Um, and then uh, we can kind of wrap up, put a bow on this little section, but hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something, and if you have any questions about any of these brewing processes, uh, just send me a message on Facebook or Instagram or... Text me if you know me. Cheers. Bye.